0: Well as you know last time uh, we uh last time we were together uh we talked about the uh, uh the doctrinal side of things we're moving into and the thing i want you to remember about all of this is how that that remember that safety net concept that i that i gave you how that uh, uh the doctrines of the bible really keep you uh in line as far as everything that uh Um, you know, the Bible wants to do for you of keeping you doctrinally sound. You know, the Bible talks about having a sound mind, sound speech, sound doctrine, a sound faith. And all that comes back to, you know, that safety net of truth that doctrine provides. And, you know, and as I told you, um, today uh, in the church age, sound doctrine is not part of the process. And that's why it's such a mess today in Christianity and uh, we don't have, uh, have it the way that we, we need it to have and everything that goes on. So, um, so last week, uh, last time, and help me with this, I could not remember for the life of me. We finished the seven mysteries, right? Yes. But we didn't get into anything else, did we? Okay, because I couldn't remember what I did. Well, today I want to I get into the second seven series, and that will be the seven baptisms. And uh, this is one that most people, they, when you start to talk to about and tell them that there's seven baptisms in the Bible, uh, they kind of look at you like you're an idiot uh, because uh, uh, to them, uh, they don't know anything about the Bible. So I want to explain this first, and then I want to show you how it works. Now, here's the problem that legitimately people will have. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. There, that's better. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse uh, uh, 5. It says, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, you could see the confusion that would be in somebody's mind uh, when they hear me say that there's seven baptisms in the Bible. And of course, uh, they would say, well, the Bible, when says there's one baptism, and Bob says that there's seven and, of course, the answer to that is that there, what he's saying there is that there's one true baptism, one real baptism. And then uh, based on that one, all the other ones are pictures of the one true baptism in one form or the other. And, uh, you know, the understanding of the concept of the seven baptisms is, a, is someone who has the ability to break down their Bible, and, you know, and, and then put it all together. And that's really the key of that uh, that we're working with here. Now, I want to start and I want to show you the one true baptism first. And then uh, then we'll come back and we'll look at the other ones. Come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, let me say this, first of all, that the one true baptism, and this is very important, it's vital, the one true baptism has nothing to do with water. You have to understand that. And the reason why you have so many people who get caught up in baptism regeneration, uh, baptism for salvation, uh, is because they don't understand this concept. Probably in Christianity, there is no more um, confusion or the biggest heresy that exists for hundreds of years is the is the false teaching on baptism for salvation. And it comes down to that whether it's a Jehovah Witness, even a even a, a Campbellite, um, you know, a Mormon, uh, and even a charismatic, especially a charismatic. And at this day, we can throw in all the evangelicals and most of Baptists in it too. They don't understand baptism at all from a Bible standpoint. So, because they have no doctrinal understanding of baptism, then they look at the different baptisms in the Bible and they try to place them into the church. This is what happens in Acts, and we're not here yet, but we'll get there when I show you. This is what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Everybody that believes that baptism for salvation will uh, we'll run to Acts 2.38, where it says, Baptize, Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And because they don't know how to rightly divide the Bible, they try to put that baptism into the church. And, of course, the failure in all of that is simply them not understanding the seven baptisms and realizing that the one true baptism uh, has nothing to do with water. And what he says in verse 13 here, he says, um, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, this is the spiritual baptism. If there ever was a baptism of the Holy Ghost, as the charismatics try to make it in Acts chapter 2, If there ever was anything closely resembling that, it would be the one true baptism. Because the one true baptism is you being immersed in the Holy Spirit of God the day you got saved. And that's the one, when it talks about one faith, uh, one Lord, one baptism, that's the baptism that it's talking about. So the first thing you need to know about baptism is that, baptism, the real true baptism, has absolutely nothing to do with water. Now keep your finger here and turn back to Romans chapter 6. Every guy cult religion that tries to teach you and tell you that baptism um, is for salvation... We'll always go to Romans chapter 6, and it says in 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, the, in the first two verses, it's told you that you can't live in sin anymore. Uh, you can commit sin, but you can't live in sin. An unsaved person lives in sin. A Christian never lives in sin, but a Christian can commit sin. And what he's saying here that that, uh, you can't live in sin uh, any longer therein. And here's the reason why. Know, Know ye not that so many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now every cult on the planet will make Romans 6, 3 water baptism. And they'll tell you that that is the day you got baptized and got your sins washed away uh, through the water in a public water system. And of course, we know that not to be true. But once we define baptism, uh, the true baptism, as the spiritual baptism, that when you got saved, you were baptized into Jesus' death. Now that's why, moving forward here a little bit, when we baptize somebody... We, we stand them up in the water, we put them under the water, and then bring them back up out of the water. It's symbolic of what Christ did in the baptism of Jesus' death. He came down through the deep water, came to this earth, died, buried, rose again, and then he went back up through that water. So when we baptize somebody, it's buried in the likeness of his death. Romans 6, 3, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So that's why we baptize the way we do. We baptize as, as Bible believers through, the, through immersion. Uh, your um, your um, Protestant churches, uh, they'll baptize through sprinkling because they got it from the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church uses the mode of sprinkling to baptize, never immersion, and uh, the Bible teaches very clearly uh, from John's baptism when they were baptizing in the River Jordan. And when the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 um, or 7, uh, when he's talked about by Philip about being baptized, he says, here is much water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And the Bible says they went down into the water and came up out of the water. The reason why baptism can only be immersion is because it's pictures somebody's death. You've all been to funerals. When you bury somebody, you don't stand them in a corner and throw dirt in their face. You put them down in a hole and you bring them up uh, and you put them down in a hole and then at a point in time, they get resurrected. And that's the picture of, of, of baptism of Jesus' death. It has nothing to do with water. That has to be the premise by which we start. You have to realize that true baptism, the one true baptism, uh, is a picture of, 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 of a spiritual baptism that is the baptism of Jesus' death, that is the spiritual baptism that the day you got saved, you were immersed in the Spirit of God because of His um, dying on the cross for you and going down and coming up out of the, out of the tomb. And that is the first thing you have to get settled in your mind if you're going to understand these seven baptisms. The rest of these, the other six, will be pictures some way or some shape or some form of this one. And we'll talk about that uh, as we, we go through it. Now, the second thing I want you to see and understand is the definition of baptism. And people don't know this. They don't understand this. And fundamentally... John Chapter One. Let's go to John Chapter One. Okay. John Chapter One. Let's pick it up here in verse, uh, pick it up in verse twenty nine. 28, these things were done in uh, uh, Bethbara beyond Jordan, where John was baptized, Tising. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me." And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. The the definition of being baptized is this, across the board. Baptism never saves you, but baptism manifests something. You've got to know that. Wherever you find baptism in the Bible, it's going to be a manifestation of something. In this case, and we'll talk about this in a moment here, uh, it's Christ manifesting Himself to the nation of Israel. So we, we want to keep those two things in mind. Uh, you lose concept of those two things, and then you're gonna, you know, you're gonna lose the whole idea or concept <laughs> then of, of of baptism, and you're gonna get you're gonna get messed up. Now another thing you're gonna start seeing here as we start going through these seven series. And this, go back to our, 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 our network work, our crisscrossing of doctrines. You're going to see these things start overlapping with what I already taught you. In other words, all doctrine will interlock with other doctrine. And uh, that is the key. The older you get in the Bible, uh, studying the Bible, and the more you learn the Bible, the more you're going to see that how the Bible will always lock itself together with other principles. Uh, I tell people all the time, when it comes to figuring out something in the Bible, you have to have a chain of evidence, chain of references, a chain of doctrine that supports what you want it to say. Uh, It's just that simple. Uh, And you always want to just follow that rule. And you're going to start to see that doctrine will interlock itself with other doctrines. I don't know of any doctrine in the Bible that simply stands on its own. They all interlock with something else. Now let's begin to look at these and, and I'll start to walk, the, walk you through these. Now the first one is found in, in and this is not, this is my order, it isn't, a, it isn't the, the order that God puts them in, this is, this is how I got them in my Bible. Now, come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, here. First Corinthians, is that in the New Testament or Old Testament? Here I, okay, here we go. Now, it says, 10 Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now this is called the baptism of Moses. And this baptism takes place when they come out of Egypt. And the the key here is the fact that this is not by immersion, though they got totally drenched, it's by what we would call aspersion. In other words, as they walked through the uh the Red Sea being parted, there was a mist. If you ever been to Niagara Falls, and you know you've ever seen there where the water coming over uh, you can be a hundred yards two hundred yards from the falls itself and still get soaking wet because of the mist it puts up and that 's what this baptism was this baptism uh, we uh, uh is them getting to the point where they get uh completely drenched by that. And if you look here, uh, it says, uh, verse one, moreover, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. Now, when we get a little bit farther on in these, I'm going to teach you the seven things that you should not be ignorant of as a child of God. And this is one of them. So here again, we're seeing them cross over each other. And of course, uh, I found that the seven things that Paul says that Christians are not to be ignorant of, or the exact seven things that Christians have no clue about. And here's a case where uh, this baptism is a picture of something. And uh, the book of Exodus is probably the single greatest book in the Bible. If you just wanted to look at a snapshot picture of what our Christian life should be. Um, come back to the book of Exodus and let me, let me walk you through this here uh, and show you what I'm talking about. Now, in the book of Exodus we know that exodus is, means uh, the exit, like our exit signs. And it's a book that shows you how Israel leaves Egypt under the blood of a lamb uh, by Exodus chapter 12. At the same time, the book is a picture of you and I leaving the world through salvation. And the book of Exodus is one of the most incredible books that you're going to find in the Bible that kind of gives you a capsule view of of what the Christian life for you and for me should be. Now, in chapter 1, 2, and 3, you have a picture of the nation of Israel as an unsaved man. And they're under the bondage of Egypt. Egypt's a type of the world. Pharaoh's a type of the devil. And he's put them under hard bondage. And inspirationally, that's a picture of you and me before we were saved, under the pressure of the world system and under the uh, under the devil and him trying to destroy you and crush you and and, and just do everything for you that uh, he could. And then in chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6... You find where they cry out to God, and then God sends them a deliverer. <clears throat> and that deliverer within the story is Moses. Putting into the practical application of me and you, the deliverer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you can go back in that chapter and see all of, the, all of the parallels. They cry out to God, God hears their cry, and he sends them a deliverer. God saw your need, he heard our cry, and he sent us a, a deliverer. And as soon as the Deliverer shows up, Moses, then we find in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, we find the the adversary shows up. And this will be the, the contention with Pharaoh and Moses over the fate of the nation of Israel. This will be a picture of once you get introduced to Christ, get introduced to the truth, the battle now that will begin in your life. It's an incredible book because it shows us that before you get introduced to the truth of God's Word, there's really no battle in your life. You're just an unsaved person who just goes on doing what an unsaved person does, but there's no real conflict between good and evil. You're just evil. But once you get introduced to God, once you get that first track, once you come to a church service, and once you now know that there's an alternative, what happens is, is the adversary shows up to try to undo what the deliverer wants to do for you. So we have in those chapters the great contest between Moses and Pharaoh. And what hangs in the balance is the nation of Israel. And in the great contest between your deliverer and the devil, before you got saved, what hangs in the balance is your soul. So you see how that works. Well, in chapter twelve, we all know what happens. That is such a powerful picture of, of salvation uh, that it has been called uh, the Gospel according to Exodus. Uh, the nation of Israel gets delivered by the blood of a lamb, just like you, as God's son, got delivered by the blood of the lamb. And there, they put the they put the blood on the little of the doorpost, and the top of the door of their their dwelling. And this is called for the nation of Israel, the Passover. This is where the Passover begins. Exodus chapter 12 is a absolutely incredible chapter in the scheme of everything here, because up to this point, it was the Feast of Tabernacles that began the nation of Israel's year. The Feast of Tabernacles and the beginning of the year was based on the creation of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 when God began to, rec- not recreate, but reconstruct everything that was destroyed in Genesis 1, 1, 1 2. That is commemorated into the Bible by the Feast of Tabernacles. It took place sometime in September, October. Uh, Actually in September, but, but a time where 6,000 years later now moved into October with the change of the days. So I say September, October. But that's the Feast of Tabernacles. You can find the first six days of creation lining up with the uh, days of the Feast of Tabernacles, if you want to put the study to it. But now in Exodus chapter 12, that changes. No longer are they going to begin the beginning of their year from the Feast of Tabernacles. Now they're going to begin the beginning of their year from the Passover. That's a picture. If any man be in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things become new. Everything changes in Exodus chapter 12. And they came out now, well, by the blood of a lamb. And the blood of the lamb brings them out of Egypt, under the, out from under the bondage of Pharaoh, just like when you got saved, it brought you out from the world and under the bondage of the devil. And that is the picture so far up to this point. In chapter 13 you'll find the great chapter that deals with Israel's sanctification. They are told here that they're to be a separate people, and they're now separated from Egypt or the world. And, of course, the first thing, once you get saved, that you need to understand is the fact that you are uh, sanctified. You have been set apart. You're no longer, uh, you may be in this world physically living here, but you're no longer of this world. In the next chapter, chapter 14, this is where we find them going through the Red Sea. And this is where First Corinthians chapter 10 takes place. This is where they get baptized. So you can see the baptism of Moses is given because it is an example of you baptism and my baptism uh, in the order of events that actually transpired in this snapshot capsule of your Your life before salvation, your introduction to Christ, your salvation in chapter 12, and then the events that in the order should take place. In chapter 15, I'm going to go ahead and go through the rest of this for you. In chapter 15, you have the song of Moses, and this will be in kind to, he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. You got a new nature, you got a new life, you got a new name, and you get a new song. And so that song is in chapter 15. In chapter 16, that's the great chapter on the manna from heaven that God brings down, and that'll show you uh, how important the Bible is to you because the is a type of, of the Word of God. And so now we have that picture there uh, in chapter 16. In chapter 17, you have the picture of an understanding of what your prayer life should be. And here is where Moses is standing on the hill and he's praying, and when he lifts up his hands to pray to God, uh, the battle that's going on before him uh, goes toward Israel. When he drops his hands, the battle goes toward the enemy, and so he gets weary, and he gets Aaron and Hur to come over and hold up his hands for him, and the battle is won. That's a picture of your prayer life. This is why the Bible says over there in in Timothy, uh, I wish men would lift up holy hands. Uh, And the dumb, stupid, charismatic thinks that that means that when they go to church, they lift up their hands, you know, and all of that. And of course, the truth of the matter is there's nothing holy about these hands. That's the picture of the inner man lifting up your spiritual hand to God in prayer. And then when you have a really tough time that you get weary, you call a couple of your friends on the phone and they hold up your hands and pray with you. That's what that's a picture of. See how that book of Exodus, lays that thing out. Once you see that, you just get a a snapshot capsule view of the Christian life. In chapter 19 through 24, he goes through the law. And uh, the law, even though we are not under the law, the law is the basis by which the New Testament is built on. And, uh, you know, Jesus Christ came. When he came, he fulfilled the law but the law is something that you and I need to understand uh, as it applied to Israel and as it will inspirationally apply to you in many cases. The next set of chapters will be chapter 25 through chapter 27. And that will be all focused on the tabernacle. The tabernacle now will, if you're following along here, we're looking at somebody's spiritual growth. They were unsaved, God sent them a deliverer, The adversary showed up to keep the deliverer from changing their life, but they got saved in chapter 12, and then they understand they're sanctified, that's discipleship one. They got baptized, that's discipleship one. They got a new song, they understood what they're getting, now that's discipleship one. Uh, They got the book, that's discipleship one, Thursday night Bible study and all that we do. Uh, They learned how to pray, that's the prayer groups in discipleship one and discipleship two. Uh, they are now learned the law, how it applies to them or don't apply to them based on now we're in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle will have seven pieces of furniture in it that will illustrate the depth of your relationship and your personal walk with God. Each one of those pieces are the furnishings that is talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, where he says that the man of God is, is, is perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So now we're seeing the maturity process begin to unfold in somebody's life. In chapter 28 through chapter 31, this will be the great chapter that deals with the priesthood. And every aspect of the priesthood here is laid out. The parallel will be that, that if you're saved here today, you're a priest. And uh, you're part of the spiritual priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So you will learn everything in there about what a priest should be. All those things will apply to you. And in chapter 30 through, through chapter 40, uh, we now get into it and we look at the work and the ministry. So you're going to see where the book of Exodus is an incredible book that brings you through. Uh, almost like a snapshot picture of where uh, you know, your life with Christ is and what it should be. Uh, section by section. And this is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talked about the, uh, the baptism of Moses. they coming through the Red Sea and getting baptized is a picture. and fits into the overall scheme of God dealing with Israel to show you the process of your spiritual life with Christ from before you were saved, when you got saved, and in every event that needs to be put into your life spiritually from that point on. You'll look over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at verse 11. And it goes down here and talks about all the things that Christ did for them and that they did with Christ, and it says this. Now, all these things happen unto them for examples, samples, uh, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. And, of course, he's telling us, look at verse 6. Uh, now, these things were our examples. So everything in the Old Testament concerning this baptism here are for our sample and our example. Now, let me tell you the difference between an example and an example. An example is something that you do. An example is something that you are. And so you, you, we learn from what Israel went through in the book of Exodus Uh, how that we are to get a picture. I mean, if you ever got first, when you got saved, if somebody would have sat down with you and just walked you through the book of Exodus in the way I just did it, your whole salvation experience and relationship with Christ would have got a lot clearer. But that doesn't happen today because guys don't believe the Bible, they don't teach the Bible, therefore their people never get the word of God the way that they should. But it shows you it gives you a clarity to exactly where you're at and what you should be doing uh, in your Christian life. Every one of you here is somewhere within the book of Exodus. And that's just the way it works. And, uh, and everybody here is on a different level. Um, and, uh, and you're moving right along. And that, but that's what I want you to see. So that is the baptism of the nation of Israel. And that's why you find that. And there, again, you'll find that that is a picture of the one true baptism. And that's, that's, that's what you have. Now, the second one, we want to come to Matthew chapter 3. Yes. Yes one true baptism part of the seven. Mhm. Yeah, it's the baptism of I gave it to you, first Corinthians 12:3. I'm sorry. This would be the third. Mm-hmm. I right. Oh, I guess I did. Yeah. What I here's what I did. And this is what, and I'm sorry, I'm confusing you. <laughs> when I where I have them listed here, I have them one, baptism of Israel, baptism of John, baptism of Jesus death, baptism of of uh repentance a bat- Gentile baptism, baptism into the body of Christ, that's 1 Corinthians 12, and then a baptism of fire. What I did is I pulled number six out and put it first, so uh, I'm sorry. This was number three, baptism of John. I'm sorry. Yeah. You so said the baptism by aspersion for Israel. What's, is there a spiritual significance or application? No, it's just the fact that there's no way they could have got immersion. Uh, aspersion is immersion. It's just by another, m- another mode. Uh, <clears throat> no, it's just, it, it, it both gets you totally wet. Uh, it's just one you go under and the other one you don't. I would say, I would say, and this is a great point, and I'm just thinking this off the top of my head since you asked that question. I would say that the reason why it was aspersion and not, uh, uh, is because Jesus hadn't come yet. So, going under the water would not have been um, to use the Jewish term kosher. Uh, so that's probably why. You know, and I I, can't, I never thought of that until you just asked that question. And that's probably, and that's a great question. That's probably the reason. This is why you guys are so invaluable. I mean, uh, you know, most churches are like the Titanic. Uh, they're sinking. And uh, everybody's, The ice sinking, the ship's sinking, everybody's rearranging deck chairs, you know, to try to make things work, and the ship is sinking. Here, uh, the ship is not sinking, and we are dodging the icebergs at full speed ahead. And it's things like that that really make it work. So, uh, uh, yeah, and you just call me Jack, Jack Dawson. You can call me Jack if you want. Okay. Uh, Oh, yeah, sir. Real loud now. I don't have... My, my roving mic is not here this morning. Thank God. they went across on dry land. that there's this mist dry land? Okay. I can't hear you. Say what now? They went across on dry land when they went through. How can there be a mist when it's called the dry land out to be dry that they're walking on? How can it be a what? It says they walked across on dry land. Right. How could the land be dry if there was a mist? Well, the same way... The same, way that the, <clears throat> the same way that the water held back and the land stayed dry, God didn't need to baptize the land. He needed to baptize them. Yeah, and it's the same thing. You see it kind of the same thing uh, in the plagues that God brings upon the Pharaoh. The plagues go everywhere but where the Jews are. So, yeah, they don't, they don't fall in the land of Goshen. So what you have here is that God is selective of what he does to keep the type in play. Uh, the ground that they walked upon, good point, was dry ground, but they got soaking wet. And of course, the picture of that is the fact that uh, um, the God allowed them to get baptized, but the ground didn't get wet because they had to get across. So there again, that's another great, another great question. John, uh, Matthew chapter 2. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 3, I'm sorry. Uh, Verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, for this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this will be Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 8, if you don't have it marked in your Bible. Saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and, and leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Uh, then went out. To uh, him, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. And they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, but when many uh, saw of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, uh, bring uh, forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. Now let me just stop here for a second. All this here, all this baptism here and everything that's going on here has to do with the nation of Israel in their spiritual condition. Notice how uh, John, when he sees them showing up, um, he, he tells them about the second coming of Christ, the flee from the wrath to come. That's the second coming. And um, And he says, and think not to say to yourselves, we have Abraham, our father, for us saying to you that God is able to make these stones. Now this is, if you don't have this marked in your Bible, mark this in yellow, these stones. To raise up the children of Abraham. And now also the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that bringeth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now that is a reference to the nation of Israel not bringing forth fruit, that's going to wind them up at the second coming of Christ in the great white throne in the lake of fire. That's what he's referencing to. "'I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, "'but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, "'whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. "'He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire.'" Now, I'm going to cover two baptisms here um, at the same time, since we're already here, and it'll save me from coming back, and we'll keep it in the same context. You notice there's two baptisms here. This will be, he says, I baptize you with water, and then there's somebody going to come that's going to baptize you with fire. And of course, the water there is a reference to the Holy Ghost, uh, and the fire is a reference to, um, to something else. Now, every charismatic on the planet, almost without exception, will look at the baptism of fire... And they'll think that's a good thing. And uh, they think that the baptism of fire is speaking in tongues because over there in Acts 2 or Acts 1, uh, when they spoke in tongues, it was like cloven a fire on their heads. So they think that that's the baptism of fire. So they pray for the baptism of the Holy Ghost and that the baptism of fire will come and then you'll speak in tongues. That is the lunacy of being a charismatic the baptism of fire here that you're praying for in the context is dying and going to hell in the lake of fire. So when a charismatic is praying for the baptism of fire, thank God that God doesn't answer all our stupid prayers, he's basically asking for God to send him to the lake of fire, uh, which God won't do. Uh, But uh, again, it's completely not understanding how the Bible goes together. And so what you have here is... Um, is Jesus coming to be baptized. And then it's 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbid him, saying, I have no need to be baptized. Uh, I have need to be baptized of thee. Comest thou to me? What he's saying is, what in the world are you coming to me for to be baptized? I, uh, I, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus answering and said unto him, Suffer it to be now, for this becometh uh, to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, Then he suffered him. And Jesus, uh, uh, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water. Now there again, that shows you that it wasn't sprinkling. One of the craziest, goofiest things you ever saw in your life was, I forget which movie it was. Back in the late 50s and the 60s, they did a lot of, biblical-based movies. Ben-Hur was obviously one of them. Uh, the Robe was another one. Uh, Demetrius and the Gladiator was another one. Uh, and uh, they were uh, major productions based on stories in the Bible. And, uh, but when you watch them, and they're really worth watching because you're going to find, if you look at the credits, everybody who's a technical advisor for these movies is connected to the Roman Catholic Church so you 'll find that uh, the funniest thing in the world you 'll find that when john 's baptizing people they 're standing in the River Jordan up to their waist, and he 's sprinkling them <laughs> <laughs> goofiest thing you ever saw in your life and uh, it 's a thing where that's that 's Rome, and that 's the way that they that they get it now. <clears throat> This baptism of John is for the, first of all, it's for the nation of Israel. I I draw your attention that they're in the river Jordan. And I draw your attention to verse 9, what I told you to mark, where he makes a reference to these stones. Back in Joshua chapter 4, when they came across Jordan, when they came across Jordan, they were told to take 12 stones and put them in the riverbed of Jordan, under the water. And they were told then to take 12 stones up out of the riverbed and put them on as a memorial on the shore. This is the exact same spot where they did that in Joshua. Obviously, he's making a reference to these stones being the stones from Joshua. Joshua. And what they did was that they took those stones and they put them under the water. Then they took stones up out of the water and made a memorial. This is why the Jews here as a nation are coming to John the Baptist, confessing their sin so they can get the kingdom of heaven. And their baptism is a reference to those 12 stones that were done back in the Old Testament that were put down in Jordan and then picked up out of the water from Jordan. This is not an individual salvation for salvation. This is a national salvation for the nation of Israel to get the kingdom of heaven based on, based on the act that took place back in Joshua. Now, you know, um, people ask the question why Jesus shows up to be baptized. Obviously, he has no sin to confess. But you got to remember two things. First of all, why baptism uh, is all. John chapter 1 verse 31 told us that uh, baptism manifests something. So when Christ got baptized under John here, and you'll find it in John 31 again, he's manifesting himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. The Bible says that he is numbered with the transgressors back in the Old Testament. Now, We know that to be the cross. Here's the beauty of your Bible. We know that to be the cross where he's numbered with the three, the transgressor. But at this time, he may not have went to the cross if they'd have done what's right. But that promise, that prophecy has to be fulfilled. So it can't be fulfilled with the three on the cross Because that may or may not happen yet, and it certainly hasn't happened yet, but it has to be fulfilled so it's fulfilled here where he shows up at the Ridden Jordan being numbered with the transgressors. That's how the Bible covers itself. All of the principles that we know that fit into the crucifixion of Christ, if Christ wouldn't have been crucified, if the Jews would have accepted the kingdom you'd have had to do something with those principles because they have to be fulfilled. So they all would have been filled historically with Israel, as this one did. But when they rejected, then they move on to the spiritual application and become part of the cross. That's the beauty of the Bible. If you ever get to the place in your life where you can get that, grasp that, and see that, you're on your way. And um, you will not be hitting any icebergs. you'll You'll be moving right along. So that that is, you know, that is a that is a key to understanding how the whole thing works out uh with John's baptism. And he was coming there to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy uh that they might have a chance to get the kingdom of heaven if they would have received him. And he was prophesied in the old testament denumbered with the transgressors. Therefore, Uh, he's showing up where the transgressors are, being baptized by John. But by doing that, he's manifesting himself to the nation of Israel on the exact spot that those 12 stones were put down and then taken up. And of course, 12 for the nation of Israel. And so that's that's what you have. And uh, it's Isaiah chapter fifty. 3 verse 12 that says he was numbered with the transgressors, if you want to put that in your Bible, which you should. Any question about that one? That's probably one of the most complicated ones, but I try I'll explain it to you in its simplest form, so it's easy to grasp. It, it's just that most things in the Bible that seem to be complicated are not really complicated if you just break them down in an easy format. And uh, that's about as easier format as there ever was. So, you know, that's just where you're at with that one. So, that is number, correct me, is that number four? No? That's number three? Huh? Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. And we have the baptism of fire. You just want to remember, let's look at that. And again, thank you for bringing that back because I would have moved right on here. He says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you water under repentance. That's John's baptism. But I watch it very carefully. Remember now the context here is the kingdom of heaven. But he that cometh after me, that's Jesus, is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, that is the first coming of Christ, giving them the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and with fire. Now, if a charismatic wants to argue that, and he'll argue it without any sense of the Bible, because he has no sense when it comes to the Bible. Uh, Notice how the Bible interprets itself in verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and gather his wheat into the garner. See that thing? There's the ones who get the Holy Ghost. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, that clearly defines the verse before it, that he's not talking about somebody getting the fire, baptism of fire to speak in tongues. He's getting the baptism of fire to be in a lake of fire. You baptize somebody in a river or a lake. So when an unsaved man dies and goes to hell, he winds up in the lake of fire forever. And there uh, he gets baptized. He goes down and he comes up. He goes down and he comes up. It's a continual baptism of fire going under and coming back up. And so, uh, none of this has to do, in in Matthew, with anything remotely connected with Christianity. The stupid, dumb charismatic does not even know that at this point in time, the church is not even in effect. Uh, The day of Pentecost hasn't come yet. Paul's not around. Uh, This is all dealing with the nation of Israel and very clearly telling you the kingdom of heaven. But when you don't know anything about the Bible and you can't establish the context, it's like I said Thursday night. Uh, then you're left to your own devices and that usually gonna get you in trouble. So now we have the baptism the true baptism, which we know to be 1 Corinthians chapter twelve, verse thirteen, the one true baptism, Ephesians four five. We have the baptism of Israel. We now have the baptism of John. Uh, let's turn over now to Matthew chapter twenty and let's look at the uh, baptism of Jesus' death. Now, this will be the baptism of Romans chapter 6, verse 3. So you'll want to connect these two together. This one has nothing to do with water, period. People like to link this to water baptism. Uh, This is long after um, he was baptized by John. And of course... I'll read it for you, and it says this. Start at 20 with the paragraph mark. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith, uh, unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit uh, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you know not what ye ask, are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say unto him, we are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism, but I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on the left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them to whom the Father prepared for my Father. And of course, the people that are sitting on the right hand, if you go into Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, is David and Christ. Uh, So, you know, you want to, that's what he's making a reference to there, very quickly. But this, is, this baptism here, has again, has nothing to do with water. It shows you that as uh, Romans 6.3 says, that the death of Christ is a picture of, of our baptism, or I should say our baptism that we do, um, or all baptism will be connected with Christ dying. Christ left the throne of heaven. We know from our previous studies that there's water up there. He comes down through that water picture of buried in the likeness of his death. He comes to this earth. He dies. He rises the third day. And then in Acts chapter one, he goes back up to the throne of God through that water. That's what baptism uh, is a picture of. Christ coming down and dying and then going back up through that water. So when he talks about two things here, he talked about, first of all, the cup. And, uh, the cup here is uh, is physical death, and he's dying. He's going to die. And then, of course, the baptism of Jesus' death is the aspect of him dying and what that represents. And uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, let's... Look at that for a second here. Verse nine, Hebrews two nine. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels meaning he was made a man for the suffering of death. See that thing crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. He tasted it by drinking of that cup. Now, you're going to find there's two cups in the Bible, and you want to make a note of this. There's the cup, which you find here, which is physical death, and then you're going to find the Father's cup. The Father's cup will be the wrath of God, the wrath of indignations poured out on the world or an unsaved man, and you want to remember that there are two cups and uh, the Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse forty-two. Let me look at that here a second. All right. Here is the here is the cup of wrath. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Father, oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, will it be done? And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so the cup you're defining here that he's asking if it's possible not to drink is the cup of God pouring out his wrath on him on the cross. So there's two cups in the Bible you want to be, um, always denote the context. One will be the physical death of Christ. The other one will be the wrath of God's cup being poured out on him, which is the cup of indignation found in Revelation that God pours out on Israel during the tribulation period. So this here, you want to mark alongside of this one. This will be this will be Romans 6.3. It goes along with this one. This is the, the, the baptism of Jesus' death. And it so, again, when we baptize somebody, uh, we baptize them by putting them under and then bringing them up. And where, um, you know, that is, the, uh, that is the picture of Jesus, as we say it when we baptize you, bear the likeness of Jesus' death, in the likeness of his resurrection. Any questions on that one? All right. The next one will be in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And this will be the baptism of Israel's repentance. Yeah. I've got a note on this one that the baptism also represented his immersion in hell. Is that, is that a bad note? Um well, it would be uh it would be uh his death on the cross, yeah, in that sense uh it's not specifically that because it's specifically him dying, but that obviously was included in it yeah all right, look at Acts chapter two now this is probably this verse passage here. Will probably be responsible for sending more people to hell than all the booze, drugs, and and uh, things that unsaved world we'll get into. And uh, Act chapter two, verse thirty-eight is absolutely, um, absolutely the greatest disaster when it comes to uh, people uh, believing for baptism regeneration. This one is used by everybody. The Baptist don't use it that way, they don't obviously believe that, but they don't know how to handle it. And uh, at some point in your life, at some point in your life, you're going to have to get uh, the book of Acts worked out for yourself. We've done it here on Thursday night and other places, probably most of you have the outline for it. It's on the website if you don't. Um, but at some point in your life you have to thoroughly understand the breakdown of the book of Acts. It's not a hard breakdown. When you get the breakdown, it will establish in each section, and there's three sections of the book of Acts. What it does, it establishes the context of each section. So once you get the context of each section, you don't necessarily need to have everything in the verses worked out because you'll know that whatever you're looking at you'll know the context of what it is without having to understand the specifics. But in time, you even get the specifics. So it's just that simple. And in Acts chapter 2, in verse 38, it says this. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins that you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now this this is the verse here. Uh, This is the verse here that everybody uses. And they they, they, they preach that you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And again, when somebody does not understand the Bible or how to break down the Bible, or I should say rightly divide the Bible, this is the problem they get into. This is a classic example of what I talked about Thursday night that very frankly irritates me with with God's people who have been supposedly supposed to be studying the Bible for four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And that is the fact that they still ask questions without ever asking themselves what the context is. And, uh, uh, you know, all that shows me is whatever you are learning about the Bible, you're not learning it very well. Um, One of the first things that you ought to discipline yourself to before you ever is to ask yourself what the context is. And this is the failure of, of Acts 2.38. Uh, here again, you know, Acts chapter 2.38, when you understand the breakdown of the book of Acts, you'll realize that the church age hasn't even started yet. You'll realize in Acts chapter 2, is that Acts chapter 1, is in Acts chapter 3, is in Acts chapter 4, is in Acts chapter 5, and Acts chapter 6, and Acts chapter 7, which is your first section of the book of Acts, the first dividing line is Acts 7 and 8. You'll find that there isn't a Gentile within 100 miles of this place. There's no church here. And I know, I, I know, I get it, I get it, I get it. It says here, verse 47, uh, and I can just hear him. I've heard him all my life, you know, when I made that statement. There's no church here. Well, Brother Bob, look at verse 47, "...praising God and having the Lord added to the church." Uh, daily, such I should be saved. So there wasn't, so the church was in effect. There was, see, the church was in effect. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Really? Well, let me explain something to you, bugwit. Let me help you figure this out. There's four or five different churches in the Bible. The book of Acts, a little bit later on, I think it's in Acts chapter four, talks about the church of the wilderness. Is that your church? Now, you want to make this the church of Jesus Christ that you're in today? Do you? Do you? Let me help you with a context. What you did is what they all do. You pulled one verse out, found the word that you didn't understand, that you associate the word church. And because you're so absolutely stupid and ignorant with the Bible, you thought that was our church. Okay, let's do a terrible thing to that verse. Let's put it in a context. Look at verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourself from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, here it comes. And they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayer. Then they're not following the gospel of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which the church that you're a part of is. They're following in the apostles' doctrine. You know what the apostles' doctrine is? The apostles' doctrine is back in Matthew This has nothing to do with the church. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything that is connected with what you and I have. So every time you find the word church in the Bible, doesn't mean that it's talking about the church that you and I are part of in the church age. The name church means called out assembly. So anytime you find a group being called out, technically they're a church. When Abraham was called out of the Ur of Chaldees, he was a church. When, e- when Israel was called out of Egypt, they were a church. Hence they're called the church in the wilderness," in Acts four. So fine you find the word "church, because you're so lame with the Bible that you don't understand that there's different churches down through history of the Bible, and it simply means that they're called out. When you and I, in the church age, when we were called out to the kingdom of God, we're a church but we're not the church of Acts chapter 2, verse 47. We don't follow the apostles' doctrine. You see how important it is to get a context? Now, the baptism here of Israel's repentance has nothing to do with salvation as an individual. This is a national repentance of the nation of Israel because of the fact that they have crucified the Messiah. Now look at Acts verse, uh, look at verse uh, uh, 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord saith unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now here it comes, verse 36. Therefore, therefore, because of what he just said, let all the house of Israel know surely. Now here's how most people read it. Let all Christians know now. It isn't to the church. It isn't to Christians. It clearly tells you, let all the house of Israel, Israel, the house of Israel. There isn't one New Testament Christian within 150 million light years of this place. There's no no body of Christ yet. Paul has not been revealed yet. Notice it's Peter who's preaching four or five messages through the first six or seven chapters to Israel. Nothing to you and me other than understanding what God is doing with the Jews. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's what he tells them. He's saying, you killed the Messiah, nation of Israel. The same Jesus who you, the whole house of Israel, took and crucified and killed, God hath made both Lord and Christ. He's not saying all you Gentile sinners out there need to get saved. He said... To the whole house of Israel, the same Jesus who you, Israel, killed and crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. Now watch. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, heard what? That they as a nation killed the Messiah. And when they heard this, were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? No, no. And that's the way a Campbellite will read it. That's the way a Catholic will read it. That's the way any demon-possessed person who teaches baptism and regeneration will read it. I've even seen them add to it when it says, what shall we do to be saved? They've even added that to pull off the deception. When they're asking the question, <coughs> here again, stay with the context. When they're asking the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? The question is relation to what he just told them. They're saying, what shall we do because... We have crucified the Messiah that God has made both Lord and Christ. Here's the answer. What do you do? House of Israel, as a nation, for crucifying the Messiah, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You notice it wasn't Lord Jesus Christ. It was made of Jesus Christ. Now, did you see that phrase, Jesus Christ? Now, I'll give you a little tidbit in the Bible. Uh, the, way, uh, G, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is his complete title. You will find it used different ways. When you find the, the name Jesus is the man, Christ is the anointed one. So when you find the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll present a complete picture of who Christ is. When you find the term Christ Jesus, it'll, the context will always be Christ up in glory, Christ, Coming down to be a man, Jesus. When you find it reversed like you did here, he just told him that this same Jesus that you crucified, God made Lord and Christ. So the, the title here is, is uh, Jesus Christ. That will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the man who now has ascended and been on the right hand of God the Father, the Christ. That's how it works in the Bible. And, and, and notice verse 39, and boy, does a charismatic butcher this. For the promise is unto you and your children and all that are after in afar far off many as the Lord God has called. And of course, um, the charismatic will jump in there and say that's a promise to you, your family, and your kids. And he won't even stop to even think about the reference to that found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 7, that clearly tells you that it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the nation of Israel. And the ones that are far off are the ones that from 606 B.C. up to the first coming of Christ have been scattered all through the world. afar off. So you begin to see here that that this is all dealing with the nation of Israel. And the baptism of Jesus' death is the baptism that deals with uh, their making a restitution as a nation for what they have done. And of course, the baptism here, again, will be a reference to uh, the fact that he came down from heaven, died, and went back to heaven, and they crucified him. And of course this is this is where look at verse 34 of chapter 2. Uh, 33. Uh, verse 32. of this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received the Father of the promise of the Holy Ghost he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith to himself, Lord. He's talking about Christ being ascended into heaven sitting on God's throne, right hand of the throne. And then, of course, he makes a reference to the millennial reign of Christ in Isaiah 66 and verse 35, making the foes thy footstool. So what you have here is a complete picture of why Israel is to get baptized. Their baptism here, Is for a national salvation because they have crucified the Messiah who God sent down to them who are being baptized for the remission of a national sin. By being baptized, they're recognizing that God did send him down. He died and went back to heaven, verse 33, 32, and 34. Just that simple. And this is the baptism of Israel's repentance, which has absolutely nothing to do in any way, shape, or form with anything connected to you, me, to church, or your baptism, or your salvation. You will find that the first seven chapters are all dealing with the nation of Israel. They make their final rejection in Acts chapter 7, and immediately it switches over to the Gentiles. Paul gets saved, they're first called Christians at Antioch, and off we go. And God never mentions the Jews one more time. He's done with them. That is their final rejection, and Acts chapter 2, verse 38, was their final chance in this segment, in Acts chapter 1 through 7. Any questions about that? Yes, ma'am? I have Psalms 110, verse 1. Look at me when you talk. Sorry, I have Psalms 110, verse 1. Yeah, I think Psalms 110 there that you're talking about is the reference to sitting on the right hand. Yeah, they all fit. Those are all the cross references. Yes. There's yes. No, there's no verse 35 in Isaiah 66. I'm sorry? There's no 35 in Isaiah 66. I didn't say verse 35. Oh, what did you say? I didn't give a verse. I just said Isaiah 66. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's found in verse 35 in the book of Acts. So, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was my fault. All right, the next one. This will be Gentile baptism. And this will be Acts chapter 10 verse 43. Now, let me walk you through the book of Acts here and show you how this changes. By the time we get to Acts chapter 11, now we have, we have beginning to move into the church age that we are part of. You'll notice in Acts chapter 11, um, in verse 26, that they're first called Christians at Antioch. So, after Acts chapter 7... <coughs> you have some things begin to change. You notice in Acts chapter 7, uh, there at the end, Stephen is, is murdered, uh, and this marks the end of the nation of Israel as far as God is concerned till the tribulation period. He now is turning his attention fully to the Gentiles, and the church age is going to come in now through a transition period. We see that transition begin in Acts chapter 8, when a revival breaks out in Samaria. Samaria, as we've studied before, is made up of half-Jews and half-Gentiles. They're a uh, result of what Shenacherib did in Samaria um, back in 606 with the captivity, where he brought the Jews down into Samaria, had them intermingle with the Samarians, and it produced a half-Jew, half half-Gentile tri- that the Jews wanted nothing to do with. Uh, that put them completely outside what God was doing because they're no longer the pure nation of Israel. Well, once that final rejection takes place, God chose an example that would catch your attention if you're paying attention at all. Because up to this point, you were told in Matthew chapter 10 that when he sent out the 12, specifically they would not go to the Gentiles nor the Sumerians. And now, lo and behold, in Acts chapter 8, The gospel is being preached in Samaria and a great revival is breaking out. Something has changed. And what we are beginning to see is that God is finished with the kingdom of heaven temporarily. He's finished with the nation of Israel temporarily. And now for the next 2,000 plus years, he's turning his attention to the nation of Israel. And he starts off by showing us that this has happened because something now is taking place that has never happened before and that is the uh, revival is breaking out. The other thing I want you to see about this is that Peter is not the head evangelist. God wanted to make that clear. God puts things in the Bible so you will pay attention and ask and see the change-up. Peter just preached four or five messages in the first six chapters of the book of Acts. Stephen finished it out and then got killed. In Acts chapter 8, when the gospel goes, it isn't Peter that's preaching it. It's an evangelist by the name of Philip. And Philip carries the revival, and then Philip in the same chapter is the one that is picked up and taken to the backside of the desert to meet the Ethiopian eunuch, which is a full-blown Gentile. Peter, if you're paying attention, after Acts 7, out of the picture. God is now going to change it up. And we have to see that change up. So, immediately in Acts chapter 8, we see something different. Samaria now gets saved, a revival, and then Philip is pulled out to go to a complete Gentile Ethiopian eunuch. If that wasn't enough, in Acts chapter 10, excuse me, Acts chapter 9, now we have the conversion of Paul. And Paul now gets saved. And we now are going to see Peter completely phase out, Paul completely phase in. Because where Peter is the keys to the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven, Paul has the keys to the kingdom of God. And Peter now is phasing out, and he's always going to be associated with Israel. Paul is phasing in. He's always going to be associated with the church. So you begin to see these things take place. And along with all these changes, baptism is going to change. So we see now in Acts chapter 9, Paul gets saved. And then in Acts chapter 10, we find that a man uh, by the name of Cornelius, who is an Italian, he's a complete Gentile. And God is using him to, you know, to... Get Paul the message that the Gentiles now are clean and the law is done away with. And this this was a tough thing. I mean, it's easy for us just to read it and think no big deal, but it was tough for them. Uh, they, they, they All they had known was the Old Testament, and now things are moving around them and changing, and they're moving quite quickly, and they have to adapt to it. And Peter especially had a problem with it. Because he's such a diehard Old Testament mindset Jew, and so God has to uh, kind of take him up on the roof and show him three times that uh, uh, what is actually taking place. And so what happens is, if you look down through here. Um, He goes up on the housetop about the sixth hour, and he goes into a trance and sees a vision. And the vision that he sees is God brings down a bunch of Arthur Bryant's food and lays it out on a blanket and says, have at it. And Peter says, I can't eat pork. I can't do that. I'm a Jew. He says, that's unclean. God tells him, look, Arthur Bryant is a good guy. You need to eat his food. And he says, I I, I can't eat. And then God says, look, Peter, what I have cleansed, you don't call unclean anymore. And of course, he's talking about the Gentiles. But he's using the unclean animals out of Leviticus to show him that there's nothing unclean anymore because the law is done away with. Now, it tells you here, if you look at this, uh, verse 16, this was done thrice. That means three times. In other words, God showed him this three times. And Peter still quite confused. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what the vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which uh, were sent from Cornelius and made a quarry for Simon's house stood before the gate. Uh, and he called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. Peter thought on the vision. The Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Now, these three men are Gentiles. What you have here, the reason why God showed him the vision three times show showing the Gentiles are now clean is because there were three Gentiles who are now clean going to knock on the door. That's what you got. Peter's struggling with it. So God is using um, big letters to help him get it. He's he's drawing it out. He's putting it in the big picture. He's using block letters so you can get it. And um, And Peter still struggles with it. But anyway... <clears throat> These guys come in and Peter starts to preach to them. And notice <clears throat> Peter in verse 44, um, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons." He starts to preach a message that is found in uh, Acts 2.38 in the first seven chapters. Now he's going to go right down the road because he doesn't know any different. And so he's preaching. Look at verse 44. When Pe- while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them that heard the word. So God interrupts his message. He dumps the Holy Ghost on these guys, these Gentiles. They start to speak with tongue, and then Peter gets it because tongues are for a sign. And so Peter now knows that for these guys to speak in tongues, it has to be of God. So the Gentiles must be okay or they wouldn't speak in tongues. And he says, verse 46, And they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we, the Jews? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they uh, with him there uh, to tarry certain days. So now this is the first act of Gentile baptism in the Bible other than the one in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. The one in Ethiopian eunuch showed you the mode by which baptism is, immersion. Here it shows you the technical, doctrinal side of baptism. Now, when we baptize people, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When he baptized them here, he baptized in the name of the Lord. Many people ask why that is, because it's a doctrinal statement put in here, so you would learn a little bit more about your Bible. We don't baptize in the name of the Lord. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here, the first Gentiles are baptized in the name of the Lord. There's a reason for that. Uh, when you go over to Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is called Lord. When you go to Philippians uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 11, you'll find that Jesus is called Lord. And when you go through the Old Testament and uh, places like Jude chapter 5, many places, you'll find that God the Father is called Lord. In other words, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one word that fits all three of those. It's the word Lord. And by doing that, for the person who's paying attention, he's, not, he's showing us that the real key is the fact that both Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God and God the Father are, Are all Lord. So it's one of those little things that he put in there to uh, help us see and understand uh, how the whole theology of this really works. And you're going to find that Paul got saved in Acts chapter 9. He disappears for about the time period is really not known for sure, somewhere between maybe 12 and 13, 14 years. We know that three years at that time he spends in on, in Arabia, that would be up on Mount Sinai uh, where Moses was, where he got the law. I would say, even though the Bible doesn't say this, no inconsistency, um, Moses went up on Mount Sinai there and got the law from God, I would say, that's in Arabia, I would say that Paul went up for three years and got the New Testament commands from God uh, at the same spot Moses did. And then... He, he's, he's missing for a period of time and this will be this period of time that we're talking about. And then you're going to find by the time we get to Acts chapter 11, uh, <clears throat> now they're first called Christians at Antioch. The new term is, is coined. And, uh, and uh, we're starting to see this thing move. And then by the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 11 and to Acts chapter 12, uh, now we have, we have uh, Paul uh, showing up, and uh, verse chapter 13, and he picks up the order of the church and carries it on from there. And from this point on, Peter is phasing out. You only see him a couple of times after Acts 1 through 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, which he was very prominent. God used him intermittently to get him the news of the Gentiles. He never really fully got it. He goes down to Jerusalem and he stays down there uh, helping the Jews. Paul comes on the scene and uh, they, uh, you know, they uh, they really uh, get things going. And then at some point in time in the book of Acts, uh, you're going to find where uh, uh, they meet down in Jerusalem and they have a little conversation. And they had heard about Paul and Peter is in the meeting and they discuss what God has done. And Peter says, hey, he's of God. But he says, let him go do what he's going to do with the Gentiles. I'm going to stay here and take care of the Jews. The Jews never got it. And this is a great principle. The Jews never really got it. Peter got it, but he never really got it. And the Jews stayed down in Jerusalem for the most part actually hoping and holding out that God was going to do something with the nation of Israel. And at this point, God is done with them. And at this point, the commission is that they're to go out and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the Jews in Jerusalem wouldn't do that. So what God had to do, which is what he always does, is he played a game of pool with them. And if you've ever played a game of pool, you know how it works. You take one of those little triangle things and you rack all the cue balls up and you put them right there and then you get the, the, the white cue ball and then you chalk up and then you, what you do is you, you hit that cue ball into the thing and they go everywhere. That's what God did with Jerusalem. The pool table was Jerusalem. The pool balls were the, were the Jews that were there. And the cue ball was Titus. And God sent Titus down in 70 A.D. and completely destroyed Jerusalem, burnt the temple, took everything from the Jews, and they had to scatter. And that's the way God got them out. And that's what God will always do. If you won't go do what God has called you to do, sooner or later he's going to rack you up and he's going to scatter you all over the table. That's what he's going to do. He's going to knock you six ways from Sunday and you'll, you'll have to go out. And that's what he did with the Jews. They never did get it. They couldn't get it. And of course, because they couldn't get it, they, they uh, God had to come down and, and force them out. And he did that through Titus. In the 70 AD, when Titus came down, it, Jerusalem is, is left. In it. You, think, you think that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Shennacherib did a job on them? When Titus came down, he he devastated the place. He destroyed the temple. He burnt the temple. Uh, It was an absolute disaster for them. And he, God used him to get them out. And when they got out, they never came back. It wasn't until 1948 that they came back. So there you have the, you know, uh, just to recap them now, you have now the, uh, you know, the one true baptism. And that has nothing to do with water. That is the baptism of the Holy Ghost that you get immersed in the day you get saved. We now also understand that baptism, wherever you find it, whether it be water or a picture of water, always manifests something. So we saw the baptism of the nation of Israel in 1 Corinthians 10, and we went that back to Exodus and show how that fits in as a picture of what Christ is going to do for you, and that's one of the greatest examples anywhere in the Bible. We saw then the baptism of John. That that baptism had to do with the national repentance of the nation of Israel through John's preaching about the kingdom of heaven at the exact same spot where the rocks were put under and taken out of the water, which showed them that Christ had come down from heaven. And, there, and then Christ is being baptized there to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he is to be numbered with the transgressors. Then we walk to the baptism of Jesus' death. And I showed you how that that is a picture, actually, of him coming down, dying, and going back up again. Then I showed you in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the baptism of, of Israel's repentance. This will be the last one, where the first one was under John's baptism. This is the final one. The nation of Israel gets three chances to get the kingdom. The first one was John the Baptist, and of course they killed John the Baptist. The second one was Jesus himself, and they killed him. But on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So they get one more chance, and that is the, Acts, the book of Acts, where they get Peter preaching to them, and they reject that one. And so um, we see that Acts 2.38 has to do with Israel because of the fact that they have crucified the Messiah. Then we saw the Gentile baptism, and that through the transition of coming through the book of Acts, we now see that their baptism is different. They're baptized in the name of the Lord, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then I showed you along with the, uh, John's baptism, the baptism of fire, where Jesus' baptism was the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That was the establishment of the kingdom of heaven for Israel. And the rejecting of that, and it's the wheat and the chaff, the wheat being the good principal part, the chaff being the worthless, wheat being the nation of Israel, the chaff being unsaved people, that he is going to, he's going to gather the wheat into the barn, but he's going to burn the chaff. So we see the baptism of fire <coughs> is that chaff being burned up at the second coming of Christ, in particular, the great white throne judgment. And you'll see these crossing over again because uh, the next time we get together, we're going to talk about the seven judgments, and we'll see how they now start to interlock, even as you have seen a little bit already. But uh, it's 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 the way that'll work its way through, and we'll go from there. Any questions? Yes, sir. So the baptism of John, was for them being in a or something like that. Yeah, the ba- the baptism of John. As the baptism of Acts 2.38 is because of the apostasy that the nation of Israel is in. They have to change that to get the kingdom of heaven. John was the first chance they had. Jesus was the second chance. And then Peter's preaching in Acts 1 through 6 and 7 was the last chance. And then he he's done with them. He moves on to the Gentiles. Temporarily.